This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just because we don't broadcast on AMI-audio anymore doesn't mean we don't have love for the work that our colleagues do over there. Just some incredible reading shows going on right now, including McLean's Magazine, which you can find weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. One of the reasons why the show is so good is because it's produced by Don Dickinson, who joins us with a look at a couple of this week's articles. Hey, good morning, Don. Hey, Dave. I'm taken aback by that compliment. <laughs> I, I get my audio pumped, piped into my office every day as I'm working on the show in the afternoon. So there's some great work that you guys are doing there. My only regret is that I host the show live when McLean's Magazine is happening. So I, have, so I have to catch it on the repeat, but that's okay. Andy Frank made a nice wheel of broadcasting there. So I'm able to pick it up later in the day. Right. Good. Don, you have a couple great articles this week. The first one really takes a look at the rise and fall of cryptocurrency, but through a pretty unique lens. The, the article is called The Many Trials of Canada's Crypto King by Ethan Liu. This is just an incredible in-depth article, but give me a brief overview. Well, um, basically, this gentleman uh, who uh, was born in, in China, but uh, is uh, can, uh Canadian, has built this empire, uh, this absolute empire in uh, in uh, cryptocurrency. And there's been a lot of um, things that have happened to him. He's had many trials and tribulations. Um, as we all know, the Bitcoin had no specific laws in place when it was originally uh, brought into being. And authorities weren't particularly sure whether... Um, or whether they should regulate it or how they should regulate it or what particular restrictions they should put on it. Nobody said they couldn't build a platform around magic internet money, which is how it's <laughs> referred to in the industry. So this fellow basically took that as a go-ahead to build an empire in crypto. And he's had uh, various uh, various problems. <laughs> so so we're talking about his value earlier this year before the crypto crash being at about $125 billion. That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money with uh, built on algorithms. Um, you've, you've said that sometimes people characterized it as funny money or magic internet money. There are plenty of people who are also major proponents of cryptocurrency. I, I fall somewhere in the middle. But, but walk me a bit further in regards to these regulations. What were the regulations that were governing it? Well, as I say, there weren't many, to be honest, Dave. I I'm surprised to hear that from you, Dave. But anyhow, we can go into that yeah, we a little can, bit for later. For sure, for sure. I'd, I'd be um, happy to. You know, uh, there weren't many at all in the beginning. And when he started, he was in the very early stages. And his, uh, quote, worldview was that uh, anything uh, goes, and if there's no law against it, then it's legal, which is quite a way <laughs> to look at things. Interesting perspective, right? yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, he started out, as I say, in China, and then the country cracked down hard on uh, crypto. And he shut down his uh, Chinese exchanges and uh, started dealing um, uh, in Hong Kong. And then Hong Kong decided that, no, they weren't too keen on that either. And then he next moved to Japan. And so the difficulty is that 
this is a moving target, right? Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. it, and and it's an industry that's in 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 flux. I, I, I would like to say on a day-to-day basis, but it's more like on an hourly yes, basis yes. it's in flux. P- people so, can trade yeah. the currency 24 hours a day, which 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 is uh, which means that it's perpetually wavering, extremely volatile. Don, you, you mentioned some geography there, bouncing around a little bit to different places. Well, now Uncle Sam is involved, the Department of uh, Justice yes. in the U.S. and the IRS. What's going on with that? Okay, so in May of last year, Bloomberg reported that the U.S. Department of Justice and the IRS have launched probes into whether Binance, which is the company that he is um, uh, uh, he owns and uh, started, has acted as a conduit for tax evasion and money laundering. Uh, that is, this is of course speculation um, that he has been avoiding the U uh, uh, taxes in the U.S. and he is saying. In response to this, that that's just a bunch of hooey and that, you know, Google and Facebook are still working out uh, um, what they're allowed to do with regulators and with data and with privacy mm-hmm. issues and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. And he said this is all just very, very normal uh, when you're dealing with mega, mega bucks and that he's going to be sitting down with uh, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. He's going to be sitting down with these regulators and thrashing out basically what he can and cannot do. And this is, of course, the problem, right? I mean, there's nothing really on the books it, as what they can and cannot do. It 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 didn't emerge rapidly, but it did grow quickly. People have been talking about cryptocurrency since certainly the late 2000s, the early 2010s. And it's only really in the last four to five years that it became more of what I'd call a mainstream concept. But yeah. certainly the regulators were way behind on this, as typically regulators are. <laughs> and they were not yeah. ready for the amount of money that was going to be created here. Don, one more question about Zhao, the, the subject of this article, uh, before, before maybe I can, I can illuminate you a little bit on where I stand on the cryptocurrency conversation because I do believe it's complicated. Again, coming back to that nomadic sort of jumping around different jurisdictions, how much is that playing into the financial issues and legal issues that he's facing now? Well, I think it's very much playing into it. He's not particularly uh, a materialistic sort of sort of guy. He doesn't have houses. He doesn't have many uh, possessions, believe it or not. He doesn't have, you know, like boats and yachts and all the things that good old uh, Elon and all the other big, big time people <laughs> the have, right? $125 billion heirs, yeah, that they typically would yeah, have, the super yachts. You know, and uh, and tying in with that, he doesn't have uh, residences per se, nor does he really stick around, as I, as I uh, you know, expressed before about you know, when he has a problem with a country, he just closes up shop and moves on. So a lot of that doesn't build trust. And of course, uh, you know, when you're dealing with financial matters, trust is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. when, when TD first launched in, in the States and we were going down to West Palm Beach to visit friends fairly regularly in the wintertime. And we were just elated <laughs> <laughs> because we saw we saw the green and white of Toronto Dominion uh, down in West Palm Beach, and I know it's kind of silly, but it's almost it's an emotional thing, right? Because 
you, you get to see those institutions, you know those institutions, and they spend a lot of money in trying to build trust. And trust is having to, seeing their signage, seeing where they are, and being able to, you know, physically walk into a building and deal with, with somebody about yeah, your money. Absolutely, absolutely. That that's that's it's it's a brand that you recognize and you feel like if you're sliding your ATM card in there, it's okay. T D I know T D and T D knows me. So Don, yeah. let, let me elaborate a little bit on what I mentioned about cryptocurrency as someone who maybe falls in the middle because there's some folks who just completely dismiss it out of hand. They say, no, it's funny money. It's magic money. It doesn't count. There's nothing behind it. It doesn't exist. And then there are folks who I would say are probably a little bit evangelical about it and say, this is the future. It's a revolution. You can't stop the revolution. And I would argue that both those perspectives are are probably wrong as in life. Most things are found somewhere in the middle. I think what happened here, Don, is people started looking at cryptocurrency as an investment opportunity rather than a currency. And the problem is when you start getting involved in currency speculation, it typically is extremely volatile. Whether you're buying the U.S. dollar or the Thai bots, anybody who bought the Thai bat in the late in the late 1990s knows all about that crash that occurred in Southeast Asia. So the fact is currency trading is always going to be something that's extremely volatile. But as something that can be used transactionally in the digital space, cryptocurrency still offers some value. But again, you have to be thinking about things like Bitcoin, or Ethereum, or what I would call the Cokes and the Pepsis of cryptocurrency. Because what happened is there was this mad dash where every jabroni in the world ran out and said, oh, well, I've got a cryptocurrency, and I've got a cryptocurrency, and I've got a cryptocurrency, and they don't carry that same sort of backing or brand or scarcity that typically you would find in those major brands of cryptocurrency. So I think what happened is there are the people who are trying to be evangelical about it, and they're they're super annoying, and then there's the people who want to dismiss it completely and maybe lose focus of the idea of the possibility of money moving swiftly and easily between people. The problem being that your haircut that cost you, you know, a tenth of a Bitcoin on Sunday then cost you a half of a Bitcoin on Thursday and then cost you one one hundredth of a Bitcoin the next week. There's just too much instability as any kind of structural currency. Yeah. And and that's, I mean, I know nothing about this, Dave. I'll, be, I'll, I'll cop to that. But that's the thing that worried me. I mean, if you don't really know what it's worth, I know, and, and I know money fluctuates. I know, you know, the pound and the sterling and the euros and all, <laughs> and all that and everything fluctuates. But at least you know that that 15, 20, $25 haircut today is going to be a $25 haircut tomorrow in dollars, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like how in the world do you deal with that with crypto? Yeah, it's it's, I mean, it's yeah. super complicated. And we're seeing the experiment they tried in El Salvador, trying to bring it in as a, as, as a major form of currency. And I mean, they have a number of other issues in El Salvador going on as well, but that experiment seems to have, seems to have failed because of the crash of the price of crypto. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting story. I just think anybody who sort of takes a, a, a a strict absolutist position on crypto, they're maybe not willing to actually engage in the conversation because I will confess it, it is quite complicated. Mm. <laughs> Don, let's yeah. jump over to your second story here. I'm sorry, we, I, have, I have to rush you through this one a little bit, yep, but yep, a, yep, few, a few times we've been talking to you about healthcare on the show um, and different perspectives on healthcare. Well, there's one that we, that we got here in this McLean's magazine called Fund Physician assistance. So it's a personal perspective by Catherine Smart. What is she advocating for exactly here? Well, basically, she's advocating for uh, PAs, uh, physician's assistants, uh, because, because in a universal healthcare system, general practitioners 
practitioners are often the only professionals whose services are fully covered, but they're not necessarily experts on everything. You know, patients still need dietitians, they need social workers, they need mental health care professionals, and they need regular check-ins sometimes just with a nurse, right? So all of this has to be uh, partly integrated into their care and physicians are just run off their feet, especially mm-hmm, with, you know, mm-hmm. post COVID and everything. So she's just saying, and I mean, she's a physician herself. She's, you know, she's been a physician for 21 years. She's just saying, listen, it's about time, if not past time to bring in physicians assistance. Yeah. It, it, it definitely makes some sense to say, how can we take some of the uh, well, we talked about bureaucracy a couple of weeks ago. How do we get the bureaucracy out and help doctors see people on the front lines? So w- whose services are currently covered under the un- under the system? And, and how many PAs do we currently have in Canada? Is, is this a new solution or have PAs been a part of our system for a while? Well, they have existed in some form in the Canadian military since 1950, okay? But right now there are only, I, I, this this blew me away, right now there are only about 800 certified in all of Canada. That's, that's not very many. Uh, I know, many of whom are <laughs> haphazardly employed across hospitals and smaller practices. And these numbers pale in comparison to rates in the U.S. and, of course, across Europe as well. So she's saying something has to be done. It, it, it's time. Yeah, streamlining streamlining the process makes a ton of sense to me. I believe it's New Brunswick is experimenting with a pilot project where they're trying to get people who have chronic conditions to be spending more time with what they would call sort of healthcare adjacent teams, like right to the physiotherapists or right to uh, the rehab centers, and then making sure that that means doctors and nurse practitioners can see more uh, individualized cases. I, I think that this is what we're talking about, Don, right? We're talking about yeah. a rethink in the way that we deliver healthcare. Exactly. You want your doctor uh, to be uh, attuned to you, that you want the time with your doctor to be simping with you, mm-hmm. communicating with you, not doing paperwork, not just fi- filling in sheets and files and prescribing your medicine and all the rest of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so P- PAs can do all of the all of that uh, upfront work. They can even do the basic stuff before they even walk into the doctor's mm-hmm. office, take mm-hmm. your blood pressure and 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 and, and uh, you know, uh, take your blood sugar and all. All that stuff that's really just administrative, Dave, mm-hmm, you know? Absolutely. And then they could do the follow-up administrative work so that the doctor doesn't have to go home at night, uh, like this particular doctor, and do five hours of just paperwork. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Hey, Don, these articles were great, and we encourage folks to tune in and give it a listen for the more, uh, for the more thorough uh, listen on this one. We always appreciate you stopping by, Don. Have a great day, great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. Bye-bye. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.